0: We are podcasting from inside the archive room. Welcome to episode 9 of the Year 12 English podcast. My name is Suzanne Hack, and I'm the VCE English team leader here at St Leonard's College. Thanks for listening. So we're into the second week now of the September school holidays, and I hope the revision is going well for all of you. In episode eight, uh, I looked at uh, some revision tips for the context encountering conflict and focused specifically on life of Galileo. So I want to follow that up now with uh, a recap of uh, the general material to do with encountering conflict and this time to focus a little bit more specifically on the quiet American. So in terms of your revision for Encountering Conflict, it's important to understand what the exam task requires you to do. So Section B of the exam requires students to complete an extended written response. And in your writing, you must draw on ideas suggested by the context Encountering Conflict. In your piece of writing, you must draw directly from at least one selected text that you have studied as part of our context study this year. So either Life of Galileo or The Quiet American, or indeed you might choose to reference both. In the exam, uh, in the script booklet, you will actually be asked to tick a box to indicate the text uh, that you are drawing most from. And if you are using both Life of Galileo and The Quiet American, then just tick the box that represents the majority of the material that you have used. Obviously, what's critical when it comes to the exam response is not just drawing on ideas from the texts that you have studied, but your ability to respond to the prompt that is given. And for the exam, unlike for text response, for context, you're only given one prompt. So there isn't a choice. Uh, You only have one prompt for encountering conflict that you need to respond to. The response that you write in the exam can be either an expository piece, a persuasive piece, or an imaginative piece, or indeed a hybrid of these three styles. And when we talk about a hybrid of styles, we're talking about a combination. So for example, you might write an imaginative persuasive piece, uh, and you might decide to take on the persona of Thomas Fowler, uh, and then write an opinion piece or a persuasive piece for a newspaper. So the imaginative element of that is the adoption of a persona, and the persuasive element of that is obviously the the form that you're going to write in. It's really important though that you do not attempt a style of writing in the exam that you haven't practiced beforehand. So the exam is not the time to be experimenting, it's not the time to be uh, trying out new things. If you know in the week of the exam if all of a sudden you have an epiphany and decide that you have you know a perfect approach Uh, for writing uh, the context piece in the exam please have conversation with your English teacher before that just to make sure that um, you are still able to achieve what you need to do for the exam. One of the things that's really important when you're considering how you're going to shape your exam response is that you, you need to balance three critical elements, and this is most often represented in an inverted triangle, and that will be a diagram that is uh, no doubt familiar to you. So it's the idea of balancing the prompt, so your response to the prompt that you have been given, with the ideas from the chosen text, and then putting that together in a sophisticated piece of writing. One of the things that examiners are particularly wary of, and I suppose on the lookout for, are students who uh, have memorised a context response and are simply going to regurgitate that in the exam, irrespective of the prompt that they have been given. So one thing that examiners will look at very closely for the context part of the exam is how well the student's response matches the prompt. So it's very, very important that you are planning your response with that prompt in mind, that you are clearly signposting the ideas and key words of the prompt right the way through your piece of writing. Now, that's not to say that you can't uh, memorise or plan a range of introductions or a range of of paragraphs that you can draw on, but I would certainly be cautioning against going into the exam and simply uh, transcribing a context response that you have memorised. So, if we look a little bit more specifically at The Quiet American, this is a novel written by Graham Greene. It is set in Saigon in the 1950s during the period of the French Indochina War. And one of the things that's really critical for The Quiet American is that you do understand the historical context in which this text has been written. So, a few students have in the past referenced The Quiet American as being written during the Vietnam War. That's not correct. It's actually written. In the time leading up to the Vietnam War. So, really important that you understand that it was set in the 1950s during the French Indochina War. It's told from the perspective of English journalist Thomas Fowler, and the story is really about um, betraying principles. Um, or, you know, the importance of principles and how those determine our reactions to conflict. And it also makes a quite, quite a strong statement about whether or not people can remain bystanders in times of conflict. One of the things that I think The Quiet American does particularly well is it explores that shades of grey that occur in conflict uh, and really sort of highlights for us the fact that conflict is not black and white. It's not as easy to say that you're either for the aggressor or for the victim or taking one side or another. There's a whole spectrum of complexity between victim and aggressor and anyone who becomes associated in a conflict, neither. To place themselves somewhere along that continuum. It also explores the fact that no one is completely innocent in inflicting harm on others. And Graham Greene uses Fowler to explore the idea that it is the innocent who are often most capable of hurting others due to their ignorance. Uh, And the the psychology of the moral dilemma that that presents. So we see in the character of Alden Pyle, um, an Amer a fresh faced American. um, The the adjectives that Graham Greene uses to describe Alden Pyle is is quite important. uh, Who is really there as Um, And we we learn later on that he is a covert CIA agent, but he is there under the guise of wanting to help the indigenous population of Indochina and uh, really to to do good. And the the way in which Alden Pyle feels that uh, the, the indigenous people of, of uh, French Indochina can best be helped is by the creation of a third force. But of course, the way he goes about orchestrating that and the, the civilians that are impacted and killed along the way is where that moral complexity uh, comes in. In the end, Graham Greene concludes that people must take responsibility for their actions or their inaction, and that neither is right, that ultimately we have choices to make in times of conflict, and depending on that choice we make, we are then destined to follow a particular path. So in terms of just sort of setting the historical background a little bit more, the french Indochina War was... uh, Uh, as I said, uh, in that period of time before the Vietnam War. And just to go back a little bit further in terms of understanding that, prior to World War II, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, which at the time was French Indochina, were colonies of France. And during the war, they were overtaken by Japan, and then at the end of World War II, France regained control over these three countries. The French Indochina War was fought between Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam for their independence. So it was a battle of independence from France. It began in 1946, so right after the end of World War II, and ended in August 1954. So the Quiet American is set in the latter part of that French Indochina War, immediately before the beginnings of the Vietnam War. So one of the things that's important to understand is uh, who the the Viet Minh were. Uh, They were a coalition that were formed in 1941, so still during World War II, to fight for Vietnamese independence. And their leader was Ho Chi Minh, uh, obviously, you might be familiar with Ho Chi Minh City, and they were communist sympathizers, so they, they were sympathetic to communist ideals. And the french Indochina War was fought between the communist Viet Minh and the French colonialists. The Vietnam War, so the french Indochina War, as I said, was the precursor to the Vietnam War, and uh, it was overtaken by the Vietnam War, which began in 1955 and ended in 1975. When we're thinking about uh, the conflict in The Quiet American, it's important to uh, I guess, distill your thinking down into the dip, different types of conflict that we see in this te- text. Obviously, there, there is the moral conflict that confronts Thomas Fowler in terms of whether or not he tries to thwart Olden Pyle's efforts, uh, the ethical conflict of remaining a bystander and whether, in fact, that's a, an ethical position to take. Um, obviously, there are ideological conflicts. We have the, the ideology of French colonialists um, or colonialism more generally versus uh, self-determination and independence. There is also a cultural conflict, and we see that both in Thomas Fowler and Alden Pyle. Obviously, Thomas Fowler is, has been in uh, Indochina for a much longer period of time. He understands the culture, uh, and Alden Pyle is quite ignorant of the people and the country and the culture where he has landed, and he starts, about, he starts by sort of trying to, to get that information and orientation from Thomas Fowler. But there is, a, I think, a broader debate here in terms of Western interference and the extent to which Western nations uh, are predisposed or naturally, perhaps naturally inclined, to involve themselves in indigenous conflicts and culturally specific conflicts that they don't understand. Obviously, we have the interpersonal conflict between. Fowler and Pyle, and that's centered around the character of Fong. Uh, One of the things that's really important with a text like *The Quiet American* is not just to not to be bogged down by plot retelling. I think uh, you will certainly do better in a context response. For the Quiet American if you are considering what the characters represent more broadly. So we have Alden Pyle representative of the, the do-gooder American, uh, the one with all the answers and all the solutions and, you know, the the ideology in the case of Alden Pyle of, of your carding and this belief in a third force and that, you know, America somehow needs to interfere in this Indigenous conflict in order for it to have an appropriate outcome. Obviously, Thomas Fowler is representative of those nations who choose uh, to remain bystanders or who attempt to remain bystanders, who want to be observers to the conflict without really taking sides. And then in the character of Fong, uh, we have that representation of a very naive, uh, innocent indigenous culture that is Caught up in this greater conflict and is a pawn, if you like, between in the conflict between um, the ideology of the communist Viet Minh and the the French colonialists. And there's a whole sort of parallel discussion to be had when you're looking at the Quiet American in terms of uh, the the conflict associated with colonial rule. Obviously, Indochina was not the the only uh, colonial. Um, conflict that took place and, you know, colonisers, whether they're French or British or Dutch, you know, uh, the world over have engaged in conflicts with Indigenous populations. So there's another whole discussion uh, that you can have there. So before talking a little bit more specifically about the examples that you could perhaps draw into a context essay using the encountering conflict, I wanna talk a little bit more about the historical background uh, to that conflict. Uh, As The Quiet American shows, US involvement in Vietnam predated the withdrawal of the French from the Indochina colonies of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam in 1954. And during World War II, the pro-communist Ho Chi Minh, organised Vietnamese Vietnamese resistance to Japanese occupation and in 1945 presented a Declaration of Independence modelled on the US Declaration of 1776. Uh, The President of the United States at the time, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, was inclined to end French colonial rule in Indochina but pressure from Britain who were obviously concerned about maintaining their own colonial empire, led Roosevelt to accept the return of French rule in Indochina. So, you know, there is that involvement of the US that even predates the plot that we see in The Quiet American. Roosevelt's successor as president in 1945 was President Harry Truman, uh, and he was not committed to the independence of French colonies. Uh, He was disturbed by Ho Chi Minh's support of communism, and again, uh, I'm sure you have discussed this sort of general fear of communism, which was uh, quite dominant in American thinking in the years after the end of World War II. And Truman also hoped to strengthen France's role in an anti-communist alliance in Europe. The United States then provided military assistance in order to return French troops to Indochina and ignored Vietnam's pleas for independence. When the anti-communist Korean War began in 1950, Washington solidified these policies, stepping up military aid to the French forces against Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh organization that was taking aid from the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. So there again, you've got the communist Soviet Union and communist China pitted against the liberal democracy of the United States. By 1954, the U.S. had spent $1.2 billion in military assistance, uh, and the quiet Ameri- in The Quiet American, the U.S. agent Alden Pyle puts the figure at only $210 million, but, you but know, obviously we know historically that it was much more than that. So we come now to the text, which was set in 1952, and the story of The Quiet American rests in this broader historical context. As early as 1951, the State Department of the United States government was articulating what became known as the domino theory. According to the dominant American thinking at the time, if Indochina fell to communism, other nearby countries would also become communist, and like pushing down a row of dominoes, eventually the entire region would fall to communism. Believing, as Alden Powell says, uh, we've got to contain communism, uh, the US officials tried to prevent the victory of the Vietnamese against the French. And they were largely motivated, almost entirely motivated, not so much by um, any sort of ethical reasoning, but really this fear of the spread of communism. And that fear of the spread of communism was also something that dominated Australian foreign policy at the time. As Pyle realises, however, the Vietnamese hate the French more than they fear the communist state. Um, And Pyle claims we are not colonialists, stressing the need to save Vietnam without French rule. As a third alternative, Pyle advocates the creation of a third force, a political movement that is both anti-colonial and anti-communist. And some US officials were certainly taking this position at the time, even while the government remained committed to the French side. So Colonel Trinh Minh Thay, um who was made a general in, in the, the text of The Quiet American, did withdraw his army support from the pro-French Vietnamese government in January of 1951. When the bombs exploded in Saigon in January 1952, international newspapers such as the New York Times attributed the violence to communist terrorists, and that was what the French initially claimed. But soon General Tay was taking credit for the action and the French conceded his role. So Graham Greene, as a novelist, was living in Saigon at the time and he covered several French military actions against the communist Viet Minh, including a patrol to Phat Diem, and had excellent contacts among the U.S. officials and agents. As he writes in the novel The Quiet American, Graham Graham Greene believed that the CIA had supplied the explosives to General Tay, but efforts to confirm that belief have failed to find hard evidence. It is equally possible that Tay acted independently in attacking civilians to establish his own third force, but obviously the novel suggests uh, that Alden Pyle had quite an active hand in this. By 1954, the French efforts to suppress the Vietnamese Rebellion had failed. The military defeat at Dien Bien Phu forced France to accept the independence of Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And in 1955, the Geneva Convention created a temporary division of Vietnam into northern and southern sections pending national elections. The United States, believing that Ho Chi Minh would would win, refused to allow elections to be held. Instead, the United States backed an independent South Vietnam and chose the uh, U.S.-educated and anti-communist Nao Dinh Diem as president. CIA agent Edward Lansdale coordinated U.S. policy by bribing Diem's opponents and waging a secret war against Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh. And, and we you know, obviously see a lot of that represented in the character of Alden Pyle. When we think about conflict in The Quiet American, I think there are two key ideas that you need to look at. And uh, the first is that conflict between Western imperialism and Vietnamese self-determination that dominates the text of The Quiet American. Although most of the text is set in Saigon, in South Vietnam, the shadow of the First Indochina War, which was fought primarily in North Vietnam, is never far away. The International Press Corps, of which Thomas Fowler is a member, is given the opportunity to fly north at periodic intervals in order to report on what the French dream appropriate for publication. Information is carefully edited and censored, and there's another discussion there about the role of of the media in reporting on conflict and the extent to which... Uh, we can accept that that reporting as accurate and the extent to which the reporting of conflict influences our reactions to it. Fowler describes the conflict pile, who is newly arrived in uh, the country, in the following terms. He says, A war of jungle and mountain and marsh, paddy fields where you wade shoulder high and the enemy simply disappear, bury their arms, put on peasant dress. The French who um, Fowler describes as poor devils, are discovering, as the Americans would a decade later in the Vietnam War, the difficulties of fighting a guerrilla war where the terrain is hostile and the adversary often impossible to identify. While the conflict is dismissed by one correspondent as only a damned colonial war, Captain Truan argues that it has a wider significance and the French are, in fact, fighting all of your wars. The same confrontation has reverberated across Asia and India as the old order, so obviously India was a a British colony, is challenged and former empires lose their stronghold in the region. The text of the Quiet American mounts a compelling argument against war, which is presented in this case as a futile and unwinnable conflict. The French soldiers on the ground are resigned and weary rather than committed to the cause. Captain Truin admits to Fowler that they are simply pawns, fighting till the politicians tell us to stop. The press conference with the French colonel is equally revealing. For the benefit of the press corps, the colonel weaves his web of evasion, losing his composure only when he is goaded into admitting that this war makes no allowances for the wounded. It is better to be killed outright. On his trip to the north, Fowler describes the devastation to Fat Diem, formerly the most living town in all the country, now the most dead. The novel demonstrates how social and political conflict has tragic consequences for ordinary civilians. Their particular vulnerability is highlighted by the use of napalm, even by the French captain on defenceless villages. Similarly, the way in which a peaceful street scene can explode into chaos underscores the daily terror with which victims of war live. They are never entirely able to dispense with the fear that violence may occur at any moment, devastating lives and corroding morale. After a mother and her small child are accidentally shot by the French, which is described as bad luck or malchance, uh, Fowler feels personally targeted by the bitter resentment of the soldier responsible. He reflects that, perhaps to the soldier, the civilian is the man who employs him to kill, who includes the guilt of murder in the pay envelope and escapes responsibility. War dehumanizes all those who participate in it, both the soldiers at the front line and the anonymous strategists who plot its course. Fowler remarks pessimistically on the invisible nature of peace. American, Graham Greene suggests that as early as 1952, covert American operatives were actively working undercover in Vietnam to set up a third force that would be free from communism and the taint of colonialism. Throughout the novel, Greene criticizes this response to the internal politics of a foreign country as culturally arrogant and morally tainted. Despite the paradox of Alden Pyle's essential integrity, the American is shown to be indifferent to the human cost of his actions, and we see that particularly in the explosion of Place Garnier. And he is incongruously selective in his rationalisation of its consequences. The bombing in central Saigon is viewed as a necessary strategy in the fight against communism, and the deaths of Vietnamese civilians are trivialised as unimportant. In a way, you could say they died for democracy. The lessons of The Quiet American continue to resonate, and this is where I think you need to pay particular attention to the other examples that you can draw into your context essay. The world has witnessed the United States' desire to do good on many occasions since 1950. The text also mounts a compelling argument against war, which is presented in this case as futile and unwinnable. The French soldiers on the ground are resigned and weary rather than committed to the cause. The novel also demonstrates how social and political conflict has tragic consequences for ordinary civilians. The second key idea that I think it's important to consider is the conflicting ideologies that we see in The Quiet American. Alden Powell's arrival in Vietnam does nothing to mitigate the textbook theories that he has absorbed. He literally does not see the Vietnam that has so engaged Fowler. He is simply preoccupied with the dilemmas of democracy and the responsibilities of the West. Armed with your carding summation on the, advent, the advance of Red China, Powell views the country and the conflict it sustains as a cause that needs to be addressed. So again, we see this do-gooder attitude emerging. Paul is described by his erstwhile friend as a quiet American. He is, of course, anything but quiet and does not hesitate to air his pronounced and aggravating views on the United States' international mission to anyone prepared to listen. Nevertheless, he is a quiet American in the sense that he operates insidiously behind the scenes with underhanded, deadly purpose. Ostensibly, he works for the harmless and altruistic economic aid mission which, though we know in reality, is supplying his third force with Dylactin to make bombs that the communists will be blamed for. Pyle appears to be motivated by genuine idealism. He is convinced that democracy will save Vietnam and is determined to play his part in ridding the world of communism. However, the text acknowledges the inherent risk of political idealism in terms of instigating conflict. Pyle never saw anything he hadn't heard in a lecture hall, and his lack of experience, coupled with his dangerously blinkered mindset, means that he is unable to appreciate the ramifications of his actions. Belatedly, Fowler discovers Pyle's substantial capacity to inflict damage. The notion of Pyle's innocence is referred to frequently throughout the novel. Fowler's dismissal of him with the sentence, "'Go away and play with plastics,' evokes an image of, of a guileless child, but the plastics in question are lethal. Pyle's gullibility is juxtaposed against the true innocence; those whose lives are needlessly sacrificed. And again, uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the, the observations that are made around the explosion in, um, in uh, Place Garnier, then that's certainly a part of the text that uh, you should go back and uh, refer to. Fowler's response to the conflict that surrounds him has been to sit on the sidelines. He insists that political neutrality is what is most important, and he refuses to become involved. Maintaining detachment has become an article of faith for Thomas Fowler, and he says, "...the human condition being what it was, let them fight, let them love, let them murder, I would not be involved." Like others in his position, Fowler is in danger of becoming thoroughly desensitised to the hostilities that he covers for the British public. Usually the war is kept at a tidy and clean distance, and the reporter's cynicism provides a kind of protection that anaesthetises him from its many horrors. Occasionally the conflict comes closer, threatening to undo Fowler's carefully cultivated equilibrium. At Fat Diem, Fowler is confronted with a canal full of bodies like an Irish stew containing too much meat, and is reminded of the anonymous brutality of death. Though Fowler recognises that even an opinion is a kind of action, he finds himself debating the legitimacy of the conflict in Vietnam with Pyle. He accuses Pyle of meddling, you and your like are trying to make a war with the help of people who just aren't interested. He also rejects Pyle's assertion that they don't want communism and retaliates with the argument for self-determination. At the same time, despite Fowler's criticism of the American and his ideas, there is initially at least a grudging respect for the latter's candid desire to make a difference. The two men, in fact, present an ironic contrast. Pyle's sanctimonious theorising leaves him curiously untouched by the conflict he is helping to perpetuate and the real people who are hurt by it. Immediately after the Saigon bombing, he is shocked, preoccupied by the blood on his shoe. Later, impregnably armoured by his good intentions and his ignorance, he is callously dismissive of the mayhem for which he has been indirectly responsible. The victims of the attack were only war casualties who, anyway, died in the right cause. His primary concern is with the awkward possibility that Westerners might be inadvertently caught up in the violence. On the other hand, despite Fowler's avowed policy of disinterest, he is profoundly moved by the level of suffering that he encounters. His focus is on the individuals whose lives have been randomly destroyed, the mother with the dead baby in her lap, the twitching torso of a trishaw driver. In despair, he concludes that there is no other option than for him to become involved. So when we go back to formulating a response for the conflict prompt, it's important that you consider what uh, other examples you can draw in beyond the text. And certainly in our experience with assessing context responses as part of the end of your exam, the essays that score the best are those that draw conceptually from the text Um, and focus on the big ideas of the text rather than the plot. So this idea of a bystander, the idea of colonial intervention, the idea of... Uh, stopping the communist insurgency, those sort of larger concepts, you know, America's sort of role as the global police force, the, the requirement of, of America to involve itself in indigenous conflict. So when we're thinking about that, there are a range of tools and examples that you can draw on. Obviously, I think having some understanding of The fear of communism that emerged post-World War II and really had its its greatest manifestation in the Cold War is very important. So sort of understanding the American thinking at the time, and that was obviously dominated by, uh, you know, this era of McCarthyism, which is a term that uh, has come to mean the fear of communism. You might want to look at uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy and his role as chairman of the House Committee on Un-American Affairs and their role in investigating communist sympathisers. Um, and I think any discussion of a quiet American obviously needs to link to the greater conflict which followed the Indochina War, which was the Vietnam War, and both Australia and the United States were actively involved in that war. It was a war that the, uh, the Americans and the Australians lost uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, And it was a war that was largely unpopular. And I think one of the reasons why it was unpopular was because it was a war that was being fought without any real understanding of what they were fighting against. So uh, really, the Vietnam War was a conflict of ideology. America was attempting to fight against communism, but of course, communism was an untangible enemy. And uh, as Graham Greene talks about in The Quiet American, you know, the difficulties of fighting guerrilla warfare was certainly something that both American and Australian forces faced when it came to the Vietnam War. So having an understanding of those sort of historical conflicts and the conflict of ideologies, I think is important. You might also want to look at um, some theorists, Um, who have written uh, quite a bit about um, sort of war and conflict and what motivates countries to get involved in conflict. Uh, Samuel Huntington was uh, an American political scientist who talked about the clash of civilizations. And again, you can uh, readily Google uh his name and sort of find a summary of the the point of view that he was putting forward. Another theorist that I think you might want to consider including is Edward Said, who is a Palestinian American uh, English professor who wrote a book called Orientalism and there he, he talked quite extensively about uh, the Western need to interfere in indigenous conflicts and the way the West views developing countries. And again, if you look at the conflicts that have occurred since then, um, you know, just as I'm recording this, you, you know, we are less than 24 hours since the United States has launched air attacks against ISIS forces in northern Iraq. So, you know, again, there is, um, we see the emergence of sort of America as the international policeman. Uh, needing to involve itself in conflicts in order to maintain that equilibrium so you know these are some of the the broader examples and I'm sure in your classes you have talked about other examples that you can include. When we come to planning a context response, uh, certainly our advice is that you spend about five or six minutes in the exam planning your context response, and one of the the main reasons why we recommend that you plan a context response rather than simply start writing is to make sure that you're addressing the prompt that you've been given. So look very carefully at the, the prompt, the key words of the prompt brainstorm synonyms for those keywords, make sure that you unpack their meaning and really understand what the prompt is asking you to look at. Once you have done that, I think it's important that you sort of formulate perhaps uh, three or four key questions or ideas that relate to the prompt. And then for each one of those questions or or ideas, you think about the examples that you can draw on um, from your toolbox of examples in order to respond and discuss that particular idea. As I said earlier on in this podcast, it's very important that you don't limit yourself to a discussion of the plot of The Quiet American. You need to understand that this is not a text response, it's a context response. It's about the ideas in the text rather than the plot of the text. So taking a step back, looking at what the text represents, looking looking at what Graham Greene was attempting to achieve in writing the text, all of those things will be useful in terms of putting together your uh, context response for the exam. There are a range of context prompts that you've been given, both in the practice exam booklets uh, and also on STL link. So certainly in the the week and a half that remain of the holidays, if you haven't yet begun your context revision, I would certainly be going back to, to that material. You've also been given some sample context essays that have scored highly, so that should give you an idea of the sort of written response that you are aiming for. As always, if there are ideas or Uh, questions that arise from this podcast please get in touch with your English teacher I'm also very happy for you to email me if you have specific questions about what I've said um, and I'm very happy to elaborate on that further we've hit uh, just over the half hour mark of this podcast so we might draw that to a close now Um, as a reminder you are sitting your English practice exam uh, next week on Wednesday and you've received information from the VC office about the, the practice exams that are taking place next week, that practice exam will be externally marked. So it will be about a two-week turnaround, but you'll certainly get that exam back with uh, a mark and comments uh, before you finish for the term. Uh, And certainly, uh, you know, your English teacher is your best resource at this time to clarify the things that you have discussed in class. Uh, There will be more podcasts coming. We'll be podcasting right up until uh, the English exam. So stay tuned for more uh, tips and revision ideas. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back with you next time. Bye for now.